So one of my favorite television shows used to be the show American Idol. Uh, I, I, back in the early days with the original judges, that was the best. That's why I say it used to be my favorite show because it's just not the same anymore. Um, I used to love hearing the talented singers, but if I'm honest, I, I, I experienced a little bit of guilty pleasure when someone would come on who was so sure of their talent, so convinced that they would not only advance, but win the whole competition, but of course they were terrible. And then to, to watch the judges' reaction, that, that, that was a little bit enjoyable. Now, what I, I didn't really like was when the judges would be cruel to these folks. And, and it got old after a while, and I think, you know, probably, the, it seems like all the judges are nice now, and I haven't watched in a couple of years, but I think maybe they tried to get away from some of the meanness, which I think is, is a good correction. Whether the contestant was prepared to receive the feedback or not, there, there was value, though, in the honest feedback, telling them that this talent that they thought they had was, just wasn't good enough or was flat out non-existent. I remember listening to Simon Cowell uh, in an interview. He was asked, why are you so direct? Why are you so honest when, when someone doesn't have the talent? And he said that he wanted his honesty to set people free from the delusion that they had a chance uh, of making it in the music industry. He, he wanted them to stop chasing a dead end so that they could move on to the thing that they were really meant to do in the world. Receiving that level of honesty from, from somebody else, it, it, no matter how prepared you are for it, it it's, it's really hard, right? Like it still hurts. Even if you know that you stink at something, if somebody tells you you stink, like that still doesn't feel very good. It, it would be a lot easier if we could just come to those honest conclusions ourselves, to be able to embrace who, who we are not and that which we aren't in order to become clear about who we are and to take steps in the direction of the best version of ourselves, the version that God intends for us to be. That's a form of humility that I don't know if that's talked about a whole lot. I think it takes humility to be able to say that we aren't great at something, especially when it's something that we profess to love or by virtue of our place in the world, we're supposed to be good at. Like I worked a job in my career where I did I was doing outside sales and I was selling food to restaurants and I was really bad at it. And, and, but it wasn't like I could go to my boss and say, hey, Bob, like, I'm real bad at this, but can you keep giving me a paycheck still? Like, I'm not going to have that conversation, right? Like, I can't admit, at least to him, he knew, which is why they eventually let me go, that everybody, nobody was surprised, like, when that happened. I just wasn't very good at it. But I couldn't have had that conversation, we struggle, whether it's as, as parents or in our marriages or as friends or in schools, in, in, in jobs, in places where the expectation of others or our own creates an emotional attachment to being good at something. 
And it's humbling to find out that whatever that thing is that we're supposed to be good at, we aren't. I remember growing up, I loved playing baseball. And like many young, young boys who play baseball, I had dreams of becoming a major league baseball player. But as I got older, I realized that my talent level uh, did not elevate me to being even the best player on my team, let alone something that would allow me to go on to the next level and to uh, move in, the, in this direction, to progress in a meaningful way. It was hard, but it was a helpful realization to recognize that baseball was not my calling. I could detach emotionally from it and as a pursuit to move in the direction that was better aligned with who I was and, and who I was created to be. The good news is that Jesus sets us free for that kind of humility. That whatever we've wanted to believe about ourselves, or whatever others have believed about us, Jesus knows the truth. He knows the truth about you, and he knows the truth about me, and he loves you just the same. He died for you just the same. He rose again just the same. We can come humbly as we are to Jesus and to let him define for us who we are and who we are called to be. When you embrace humility, it leads you into clarity. We're in the third month of our Provoke Life campaign as we're looking at this vision that Jesus has given for the community that would become the church. We understand that that vision is the Beatitudes. And so let's read our Beatitude for this month together from Matthew 5, verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And we understand the word meek to be another word for humble. And as we, we talked about last week, that humility can take on different forms. Humility can be expressed in quiet service to God and to neighbor. Humility can also be expressed in the acceptance of the call to act boldly for the sake of God and neighbor. And while we're tempted in the direction of selfishness, whether that's selfishness expressed as avoidance, like I'm going to avoid that call, or in arrogance, like I'm going to go do this thing for my benefit as opposed to others, Jesus sets us free from the addiction to self. And Jesus also sets us free from needing to be something that we are not. Either living up to expectations we have for ourselves or the expectations others have for us, Jesus frees us from that. And this humility sets you free to lead with your need. So in our gospel reading this morning, we read about a debate that's happening amongst the, the disciples of John the Baptist. John was Jesus' cousin, and in the classic Advent story, we read about John's mother Elizabeth receiving a pregnant Mary, the mother of our Lord, into her home. And Elizabeth was pregnant herself with John. And John leaps with joy in the womb at being in the presence of the fetus Jesus. Now, we don't know how close of a relationship John and Jesus had 
as cousins. You know, I have cousins that I haven't spoken to or seen in, in many years. But what we do know is that when Jesus came on the scene, when he announced himself to be the Messiah, Jesus was who John had been preparing the world to receive. In John's preaching, in his ministry, in his discipling, his role was to prepare the way for the Lord to come. John was who the Old Testament prophet Isaiah referred to as a voice crying out, clear the Lord's way in the desert, make a level highway in the wilderness for our God. Now there were people in John's day who thought he was the Messiah. His message was one of repentance. He talked of a coming kingdom. He had gathered a following and spoken truth to power. And some, even some of his followers believed that he was the Messiah. And so when they hear of Jesus and Jesus' disciples preaching and, and baptizing and drawing crowds, their fear was that this would detract from the impact that they believed John was supposed to make and that they would be a part of. But John reminds them that in his teaching, he was very clear. He was not the Christ. He was not the Messiah. And if they thought otherwise, well, they had hitched their wagon to the wrong horse. For John, hearing what Jesus was saying and doing was a sign that his mission had been accomplished, that he had prepared the way all along. And his humility led to this clarity, what he says in verse 30. He, meaning Jesus, must increase and I must decrease. Every one of us has unique giftings and talents and and abilities that that are are given to us that that we then can use to serve others. I want to highlight a couple that that were very critically important uh, to our our ministry here at King of Kings this week. Uh, On Thursday, uh, our computer server crashed, uh, which, of course, as you're preparing for Christmas Eve services, what you want to have happen is not to have any of your critical information available to you right? So very frustrating. So he's going to be really mad when I do this, but I want to thank Michael Butcher. uh, And I want to thank Brian Witherspoon, who's not here. I think between the two of them, they spent about 10 to 12 hours combined getting our, with duct tape and chewing gum and and talking with our our server management uh, company, getting that sort of back together so that we could function as an office. Uh, I lifted up uh, Bill Kirshner in the previous service. Uh, I, was, we were, I was up here doing some things, and I came outside at, at about 5.30 to leave, and Bill was clearing out the circle right in, in the roundabout in, in front of all of the dead brush. And I'm like, Bill, what, what are you, how long have you been here? Oh, you know, about three to four hours. And, and I, was, I was impressed. He's like, that's okay. This was my full-time job when I retired because um, I, if you know Linda Kirshner, you know that that's a lot of what Bill spends his time doing is that kind, that kind of work. Uh, and, and so he was happy to do it. But, but these gifts, these talents, these abilities, and we have all kinds of people that, that do that around here that serve, whether, whether it's our, our music team or our, our, uh, our Stephen ministers providing compassionate care, those who handle the, the details, the administrative details and, and the financial details are, are, are those who have the gift of offering spirit, spirit-led lear, uh, leadership, our, our counsel, and those who provide relational hospitality, as so many of you are, are gifted at doing. I, every time I meet somebody who comes for the first time, I hear about how welcome and in, inviting uh, you all are. 
those who serve in our kid fund ministries, those who serve uh, in hosting uh, small groups, every one of us has a gift. Every one of us has a talent. Every one of us has an ability that God has given us, whether we use it inside the church or beyond the walls. But whatever those gifts are, they come with a sense of responsibility, right? Like we're, we have a responsibility to use those gifts to benefit others. But sometimes there's a temptation to believe that whatever the outcome is that our gift is supposed to produce, it's up to us to make that happen. And in that way, the blessing of those gifts can become a curse because we feel this pressure to know how to make that outcome happen and then to see that that outcome is actually produced. So one of the ways that that plays out in my life, one of my gifts that sometimes feels like a curse is the ability to look at a situation and see what maybe God's will is for that situation, but then to see how things actually are. And then to speak into the gap in the hopes that that, 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 gap, that gap can be closed. And I believe I have a responsibility to, to use that gift and to, to speak into those gaps. But the temptation that I can feel, the trap that I can fall into, is believing that it's actually my job to close the gap. But not only do I see the gap, not only do I speak into the gap, but it's up to me to create that outcome. And there's, a, there's pressure there. And in that way, the gift feels a little bit like a curse. And in using our language of last week of, of either avoidance or arrogance, I can either in arrogance take action and putting it on myself to believe that I can close the gap in ways that benefit me. Or I can shirk the responsibility that I have and step away from speaking into that gap. What's so compelling to me about this gospel story is not just the humility of John saying that that Jesus must increase and that he must decrease, but the relief, the freedom that John must have felt in saying that. See, John had a similar gift of seeing the gap between God's will for the world and, and the way the world was, but in Jesus John saw the one who was actually responsible and who actually had the power to close that gap. John looked to Jesus in humility and that humility led to clarity about John's role. That he certainly had a role to play. He had gifts to bring to bear on the situation, but he was only responsible for using those gifts and fulfilling his calling and then detaching emotionally from whatever the outcome was that would come next. Trusting that as Jesus became greater and as John became lesser, everything else would find a way to fall into place the way that it was supposed to. John was not the savior of the world. He didn't need to be because Jesus had already promised to do that. In John 3, Jesus says, God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who would would believe would not perish but will have eternal life. 
God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through who? Through him. Not through you, not through me, not through our managing that outcome. Certainly we have a role to play. Certainly we have gifts to bring to bear on the situation, but it is through Christ that the world is saved. You know, when I think about those people on American Idol who were so devastated to find out that they don't have the talent they were convinced that they had, I don't think they were actually upset by the feedback that they weren't great singers. I think they're anger, their grief, their frustration was found in the fact that the life that they desperately wanted for themselves was not going to happen. They wanted what they believed was life to the full, and they believed that it was up to them to make it happen. And so they had to increase. They had to become great. Instead of discovering the gifts that they already possessed and their true identity, that God had bestowed upon them, that they were loved, that they were valued, that they were enough simply because they were God's beloved kids. Isn't it good news to hear that it's not up to you? Isn't it good news to hear that whatever outcome you are tempted to believe it is on you to create is not actually on you? That's a burden when we hold on to that, that is too much for you or for I to carry. Because Jesus is great, because Jesus is the Messiah, because Jesus is the Savior of the world, you don't have to be. You can lead with your need for Jesus to do that which you don't have within you to do, bringing to bear that which God has given you to use in the situation, but trusting that it's on Jesus to close the gap between the way things are and the way God intends for them to be. Allowing Jesus to increase in your life and allowing you to decrease. When you embrace humility, it leads you into clarity. Because when you know who you are in relation to who Jesus is, you'll know what it is you are to do. You'll know what your responsibilities are to use the gifts that God has given you. As God works through you, God creates those outcomes that will be a blessing to the world and reveal the love and the grace and the mercy of God to those who don't yet have faith that that love and grace and mercy are available to them too. So I'm going to have you rise and just we're going to consider a couple of questions as we close. What outcomes do you feel the pressure to make happen in your life and in your world? And what would it look like to allow yourself to decrease so that Jesus might increase.